Hi there, and welcome to the Science Media Centre's podcast. We've decided to look back at some of the biggest stories we've been involved with over our first 20 years. I'm your host, Fiona Fox, and I'm the founding director of the Science Media Centre. These discussions are basically fireside chats with three or four key people who we worked with on some of these major stories. I should say that the questions I ask are based on my own memories and not necessarily accurate, objective, researched accounts of what happened. This first episode is all about how and why we were set up. I'm joined by Tristram Hunt, Tammy Boyce and Lawrence McGinty to discuss their memories of the time and the reflections they have. I hope you enjoy. Right, so thank you so much for coming and, and giving up your time. I'm really, really grateful for our little 20th anniversary project that, that you busy people are spending time with us. But yeah, one of the, uh, we had about 100 ideas to celebrate our 20th anniversary and then we had a pandemic. So we've now got about four ideas. <laughs> um, and this is one that survived the cut um, and it is just to have maybe um, 20 podcasts about 20 big SMC stories. Um, but this one will, if it ever comes out, will be uh, the start of that series. And it's just getting together a few people that I remember um, were around and happening and interested in science and the media around the time that the Science Media Centre was being kind of envisaged. Um, so I'm going to ask you actually to introduce yourself on my first question to each of you. So I want to know what you are now, um, for our listeners, but also what you were doing and, and not just, I think, 2000, we, we opened our doors in April 2002. Um, I was appointed the November before that, 2001, but, but, um, just to give you a bit of, uh, context for me in terms of what time we're looking at, I was sitting as head of media in CAFOD, one of the UK's leading aid agencies, in 98, 99, big campaign around cancelling third world debt around the Millennium Jubilee 2000, it was called. And after that, kind of woke up with my hangover from the Millennium um, and, and realised that the Jubilee 2000 thing had been really exciting, but that the UK media was not interested in the developing world. Um, and unless I could get celebrities to, to write an op-ed for the Telegraph, um, they just weren't interested. My, my lowest moment, I think, was was the decision to take Anne Widdicombe to Africa to to <laughs> because Channel Four said they'd come with her um, to do a program on third world debt. It was called Third World in those days, and um, she went there and basically came back after five days, just as determined that the issue of third world debt was all down to corruption of African leaders. Um, so not great PR for, for head of media of Cafard. I was very unpopular. Um, but you had to do that because your your wonderful aid workers were of no interest to the British media. It had to be celeb. So I started to look around. What 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 is out there? I'm a press officer. My skills are transferable. That I could move into. Is it refugees, which I thought about for a while, or the law, or whatever? Um, and I saw MMR and autism. MMR causes autism. Frankenstein foods kill. And it was on the front pages relentlessly for two or three years. And I decided I'd move into science to the absolute dismay of my friends who said, you don't even have a science O level. Um, but I was passionate about science and I could see that it needed a good press officer. So while I was watching that, I had no idea that there was any um, House of Lords committee being set up or discussion in the science community, but you all were there. So it's really that kind of 98, 99, 2000, MMR, 
animal rights extremists completely dominating the horizon, uh, GIA, introduction of a new technology in, into the UK, um, being lambasted by editorials and Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth. So, so the question, first question is, who are you now? But what were you doing then? Um, and then that will, and you can either do this as, as part of your introductory comments, but kind of, yeah, your memories of that time and to what extent there was a crisis between science and the media. So, Lawrence, why don't I go this way around the table? Who well, are you? <laughs> what were you doing? Well, I, uh, for many years, probably too many years, I was uh, health and science editor for ITV News. Uh, before that, I, I worked for Channel 4 when it first started back in 82. Uh, for five years. And before that, I worked for New Scientist for a decade, uh, which was a fantastic way of entering science journalism. Um, uh, I'm now retired. I've been uh, chairman of the Medical Journalists Association and on the advisory board of the SMC, which was great fun. Um, but now I'm pretty much ensconced out in Canterbury doing not very much. <laughs> Turning up to podcasts like this. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Um, my name is Tristram Hunt. Uh, I am currently the director of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, but uh, some uh, 20 or so uh, years ago, I was the um, political advisor, special advisor to David Sainsbury uh, when he was um, Minister for Science um, in the uh, Tony Blair uh, government. Um, I began with David actually when he worked at Jay Sainsbury uh, PLC and was made a, a Labour Life peer. And then a few years later, he was made a uh, science minister. Um, and as we'll come on to explore, he was very passionate uh, about uh, trying to ensure that within media and within public debate, the voice of science and above all the voice of scientists uh, were was, was, was heard. Um, and so I helped to try and uh, make that happen. Great. Thank you. Tammy? Um, 20 years ago, I had a bit of a similar background to you. I was working at the Cardiff University School of Journalism, and I was researching refugees and earnest, lovely topics like that, <laughs> and had an opportunity to work on a report called uh, Science in the Media with Ian Hargreaves, who was then uh, head of BBC News and had moved over to uh, the School of Journalism. And I wrote a report and I, like you, thought, what's this MMR stuff? Why Why is it such, what, what's going on with parents? And I, I looked at it instead of as a, a media consumer, I looked at it as a, a researcher and, and started a whole new career um, and helped set up the science communication masters uh, at Cardiff University. And since then, I've become, uh, I've stayed a researcher, but shifted a little bit into health and have worked with uh, the Institute of Health Equity at UCL and with the WHO over the years and different people. But I've, I've often in the last 20 years looked over to the Science Media Center and wished we had an equivalent in health. So it's been an interesting 20 years thinking about what, what could have happened in health and what didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. So I think then that, thanks for that, that, that leads us on to just, um, you know, a few minutes of kind of general discussion about the time and, and, and your memories of it. Cause as I say, I was very much, um, outside of it, but 
you know, that report, I remember reading that report for my interview. And I remember for the next few years, everybody referencing that report it was very influential. And well, there was a famous last lap, well, famous to me, probably not to know now, who to the, to the question, who is misunderstanding who, who, whom, who don't know my grandma. Um, the answer is everyone is misunderstanding everyone. And the price is the public understanding, the cost is the public understanding of science. It was a really dramatic um, last sentence and it's found its way into my book, I think. Um, so, so my memory is definitely of a time where there was a kind of consensus that something was going wrong. There weren't enough scientists engaging. I mean, on the animal rights issue, when I came in in 2002, I discovered that no university spoke about its use of animals in research. So, well, I mean, so, so yeah. yeah, what are your memories of, mm. of that time? I mean, from the perspective of where I was sitting and, you know, these are my memories and David Sainsbury himself might have different um, memories. It, it wasn't so much really the MMR um, issue from where we were sitting. It was um, the animal rights um, issue and um, animal um, experimentation um, in and a, a, a very strong and vociferous debate around that on which there were many rights and wrong. There was also the debate around GM food and uh, uh, plant research and both of those areas, um, David, as as science minister and as someone who had, you know, invested and long supported through the John Innes Centre and, and, and elsewhere, the, the value of, uh, of plant uh, research, really, from his perspective, to support sustainable farming in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but nonetheless, we were into this landscape now, Frankenstein food and controversy around, again, all of them very valuable um, conversations. But there was, a, there was a strong sense, I think, initially from David, and then it's you know, when he voiced it, it, it percolated wider that in this debate, A, it was extraordinarily ill-informed uh, in, in terms of um, the, um, the, the media, but that's never good enough just to say that, you know, the media have got it wrong, they don't understand. One had to have the voices and crucially not the voices from financially vested interests that, you know, the last thing you wanted was Monsanto coming up and saying X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. or, and not in a cynical way, because as it were, if you wanted to win this argument, you needed independent voices to achieve a, uh, a functional end. But actually, in terms of civil discourse around these issues, you wanted the voice of scientists to come forward. And this sense that the media, apart from, you know, brilliant, uh, journalists like Lawrence, but as it were, your news desk at the mail, or your news desk um, at the Express didn't know where to go to get to those kind of voices. Those voices should be heard in this conversation. So how do we create mm. a triage centre to allow for that? And then, you know, mm. thanks to your brilliant leadership, Fiona, not just to provide an exchange, but then also to provide a, a proactive space to kind of curate some of these debates into the future. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Tell me, what's your memory? It is interesting that, that you say, uh, animals and GM and you talk about health. Cause we, I think now we could, we do health, health science, medical. We're like the Fergus Walsh, you know, we don't do yeah. the NHS like Hugh Pym. We do the, we're like you, we're the equivalent yeah. medical science we do do. But I think at the beginning, yeah, the MMR thing, what wasn't perhaps 
um, one of the issues that was in people's minds, but that was very much the focus of the report. So yeah, what's there were your... three. There were three stories in that in that report. Yeah. Um, there was we talked about climate change, we talked about GM foods, and we talked about MMR. Right. And um, and I so for when I think back to that time, it, it's it's hard to describe to people because we weren't battling against social media; we were no. battling against the tabloids. Yes, true. so that that's really important, I think, to remember mm. for 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 mm. younger folks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were trying to get science. What was so noticeable yeah. is, is science really was absent from these stories. You would occasionally get someone, you know, maybe a, it was always the same one or two heads who sometimes mm. pop out into the news yes. now, but it was a rotating older man who was always there. And there was, you, mm. you didn't seem to think that they had an expertise, yeah. but the GM story yeah. was just everywhere. And there didn't seem to be anyone who was saying, who was explaining what the real story was. It was just these crazy pictures of people yeah. protesting in cornfields yes. or yes. outside of Oxford, it always seemed to be. Yes. And then there was that mouse with the ear on it and yeah, everyone, yeah. you know, they were these famous images at the time that were just there to freak us out. Yes. You know, I think that we also remember bird flu was around that time. There yeah. just seemed to be, science always seemed to be in the wrong Terrifying. at that time. Yeah. And it was, and I remember... At the time when I got to know the Science Media Center people and met you, and, you know, I'm coming at this as a researcher, also from a humanities background. And when I learned that there were all of these different science PR folks working for universities, am I allowed to say this? I remember, I remember maybe talking to you about those thinking, what are they doing? Because they're not there defending science and they just seem to be pushing out a, a, a press release every so often. And so that's when I think back to that time, I can see big rooms of science PR people. And, and I just remember thinking somebody, this needs to change. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what happened mm-hmm. at that time is they all started to realize we really need to up our game here. Yeah. And it wasn't just at universities. I remember going and talking to some of the royal colleges about the MMR story. And I remember one of them, I won't say which one. And I asked them, you know, can I see you know, can you tell me a little bit about your uh, media approach about MMR and how you talk to journalists? And he got out a book and a pencil and he looked at all of the notes he'd written over the last year, you know, and this is one of the key royal colleges that mm-hmm. should have been mm-hmm. proactively talking yeah. to the media. He said, well, somebody called us three months ago. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, who did you put up? And they didn't have an outward facing. They weren't mm-hmm. outward facing. So all of these organizations 20 years ago, nobody was standing up for science. There really wasn't so, anyone. So th- uh, that, that's mm-hmm. absolutely, all of this is fascinating to me. That's fascinating to me because I think as well, my impression was slightly more generous than Tammy's in the sense of meeting these science press officers who I really liked as a breed. I'd come from, from outside and, and we were all really PR-y, you know, hype things. You know, the number of people who were killed in the Mozambique floods, let's double it, treble it. The worst that can happen is you get lots of money for, the, for them. Um, came into science and there were a lot of science graduates who'd moved into being research press officer at Imperial or UCL or Edinburgh, or whatever. Um, but it was a time when the scientists were kind of tentatively putting their toe into the media. So this thing that you've Mm. described, the press release for the Nature paper went out. The scientists did, you know, and spoke to Lawrence McGinty, who's worked on New Scientist, spoke to Roger Highfield, who used to check his copy, who used to agree to check his copy and had a PhD as well and a background Mm. for The Economist. Um, But if you ask them to go on Radio 5 Live against Greenpeace, if you ask them to go to speak to the Daily Mail or, or to do what you've just said, 
to defend science. And actually, to be fair to Susan Greenfield, um, the other thing that was happening, you made a very good point there, Tristan, about Monsanto, and you say not for cynical reasons, because you needed the scientists doing the research. You also had the Robert Winstons and the Susan Greenfields back fighting for science. But a lot of the plant scientists in those universities you're talking about were not doing that. And Susan was was great. She was defending, you know, those you talked about the mad headlines, there are genes in your tomatoes. Yeah. Um, but but she wasn't there to say, actually, we are concerned about this aspect of gene flow in, in GM crops. And, and because of that, we've just set up a big trial. So the scientists actually doing the research weren't talking. And to me, that, so I'm just putting all of that to you, Lance. Do, do you remember yeah. that time where you were definitely getting these scientists, they were coming out, mm. but on, on the safer stuff or on their stuff, is that fair? Yeah, I, th- I think that's, th- they were beginning to. Yeah. Um, but for me, the, the formative event really was MMR. Mm. Um, because when I first read Wakefield's paper in, in The Lancet, uh, an advanced copy, um, I thought this is such an appalling, badly written paper. It's not worth the paper it's printed on. Mm. I, I just didn't want to cover it. And it was only when uh, the hospital had a press conference to uh, promote mm. the paper um, that I suddenly realised that there were all these guys there from the Mirror and the Mail, and, and, and they didn't know. that they, they just looked at the headline from the paper and, and at what the people at the press conference were saying, Wakefield saying he'd go for single vaccines rather than a combined MMR vaccine. And they didn't have any way of checking that. I mean, I, I, I didn't claim any superior knowledge. It was, it was simply that I'd done other stories about involving statistics and, and studies. And I knew that this was, well, crap, to be honest. I just knew it was no good. Um, and they clearly didn't. And I thought, well, there's no one to tell them that it's rubbish. Who do they know who can tell them that this is rubbish? Um, and the answer was there wasn't anyone. Um, and about that time, I went to a cocktail reception uh, that Susan Greenfield organised when she was director of the RI. That sounds like Susan. Um, and uh, in the uh, part, the director's apartment with yes. a butler, it was all jolly, <laughs> jolly nice. Um, and uh, in the conversation, I, I said to her, or she asked me, what can the RI do uh, to improve the image of science, mm. to get science voices out there? And I said, well, why don't you have a science press office? Uh, now, whether that had any influence, I, I don't know. Maybe that's one reason why. Well, you claim it, Lawrence. Well, <laughs> it may be one reason why she accepted so quickly that the RI would would uh, house the the, the yeah. SMC when it was set up. Um, but it it and now it's so different that then it was really hard for ordinary journalists, even science correspondents on national mm. dailies uh, or, or on TV and radio to get to talk to scientists who were informed yeah. mm. and who knew the area um, and who were willing to talk. So it was like a fence around universities, yeah. wasn't there at the time? Oh, yeah. The, those press officers, act, you're, I th- yeah. you are generous, but I think they acted as a, bear, a fence. Mm. Mm. But we'll yeah. let you talk to the scientist mm. Mm. when we want to. Yeah. One, one of my ex-producers went to be working in the press office in uh, a university I better not name, uh, which decided to close its chemistry department as lots of other universities were doing at the same time. Um, and uh, when this leaked out, because there wasn't a press release or anything about it, uh, she started getting phone calls and asked the head of comms in the university, well, what should I do about these phone calls? And he told her, just hang up. 
they didn't want to say anything, let alone like you speak yeah. to a scientist. So the proactive bit that you were saying that David had identified as really important, that was on, on yeah. these issues, on the controversies. It was happening on the, 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 you know, beautiful paper from the academic and, and being published in a good journal. That I think was happening. And I saw those press releases on it. But, but I think the pro, what you're all saying here is that is the proactive bit or, or the ability when there's a crisis to answer the phone and, and feel a prerogative to find this journalist a bloody good scientist to do that interview or speak to that journalist. I mean, that, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. Because, I mean, David was, I mean, partly because of, as it were, his own situation uh, in terms of his, his kind of personal kind of liabilities, investments in, in science and long history of supporting that. So there was a political controversy that David had to deal with a lot. Uh, in terms of blind trusts and all the rest of it. And that's kind of politics. That's fine. But he also, um, because he was in the political world and the political realm, could see every day how this was then mm-hmm. shaping mm-hmm. debate and affecting debate. So he he wanted to try, as I said, to, to sort of create that public square. And I think we're absolutely right to kind of you know, note um, and honour the the support of Susan Greenfield for this initiative, because Susan, at that stage, in her full kind of glory, very much a media figure, very and and you know, uh, at the Royal Institution, um, and and excited in many ways about the about you know the relationship between science and media, but but feeling the frustration of it. So she came to it from almost a sort of public info, kind of Robert Winston sort of public information space. David came to it from a political discourse, public debate space, because ultimately he could see, seeing elected politicians around him, if you're facing, you know, three weeks of headlines around Frankenstein food, you're then going to make a political decision Mm. about Mm. research or Mm. trials or whatever, which will have long-term implications. That might well be the right decision, but I suppose he wanted to ensure that politicians in this field, being influenced by the media, wanted to ensure that the media themselves had those, exactly as Lawrence said, those other mm. voices. I think you're also right. And again, it's very, it's so interesting that MMR just wasn't because it just wasn't on our kind of sightlines on this, but the climate change controversy and conversations mm. around climate change mm. were, uh, but not, not to the same level of political urgency uh, as the others. I mean, the final point I'd make about it just in terms of this is the bit I remember, and then we, we, we I, I, I kind of moved away. But I, I had worked for the Labour Party um, on the 1997 general election campaign when, thanks to Peter Mandelson's reforms, you know, we had, you know, whatever it was called, our rapid response or our yes. rapid rebuttal unit. Yes. And our, you know, these, these kind of mechanisms. Are we based on Peter Mandelson's? <laughs> and actually, some of, these, some of these mechanisms that it, I mean, it had to shift because it wasn't, as mm. it were, you know, driving a political project. But to, to speak to exactly Lawrence's mm. yeah. argument about, you know, Wakefield and others, mm. you've, got a, you've got a presentation of X. And mm. our vision was always that mm. within 48 hours or within 24 hours, yeah. within, a, within a kind of proper cycle, but it had to be, yeah. ver- and that's the point, it had to be yeah. verified and proper, yeah. that you could be able to present journalists with a sort of, 10 point rebuttal from other yeah. scientists in yeah. in the field yeah. and understand and that's why yeah. you've been so brilliant is is understand the rhythms of the media yeah. it was bringing together scientific authority 
credible institutions yeah. like the Royal Institution, like the, 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 the you know the universities, um, alongside media savviness to to begin to reshape yeah. some of that conversation. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think the credible word is that, and I think that that says to your point about these royal colleges who were not doing it, but there were plenty of people out there doing it. They weren't credible. So so that was a thing, wasn't it? Persuading good science. And the Royal Society, uh, Bob Ward, love him as I do, worked at the, the Royal Society at that time and was saying, we don't think we need uh, science media. And certainly my colleagues back at the Royal Society don't. But do you remember Pushtai? The, the, the allegations on the panorama that, that um, GM fed to mice, gave them cancerous tumours and they died, was massive. Royal Society set up an inquiry and six months later, they produced a report that showed that his science was inaccurate. Six months. And in that six months, everybody talked about push dye. GM foods lead to cancer. Now we would want those scientists, the same scientists that sat on that committee, we would want them to do that now, today. And in fact, we did that on several. I always remember one of the first rapid reactions we did was when Dolly the sheep died. And you or somebody phoned me up and said, and it was six o'clock on a Friday night. We, we'd actually gone to the pub, but we came back up to the office with our pints. Um, is seven, I think she was seven, is seven the normal age for a sheep to die? Or is it because she was genetically modified? Was she? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, go to the database, phone everyone up. It's seven. Seven's all right. Seven's all right. So this wasn't the, you know, and a lot of them were doing the Nottingham people. They were doing research on, on her. <laughs> Health and they're basically she died a bit early because everyone fed her when they went to visit her because she was a celebrity. <laughs> um, so, but within an instant, a story that could have been genetically modifying sheep is a bad thing. Hence, stem cell research is a bad thing. Health designer babies, it just didn't really happen because there was no story. Yeah. Um, I'm going to come to the end of this section, but there's just one other thing I wanted to pick up that you've all mentioned, which which interestingly is not necessarily what everyone talks about, and that's the public. You talked about the public space and Sainsbury's interest in the public space, and you talked about the public. And I think it's worth stating here that this, I can't remember which of you said that, oh, yeah, you were saying that if if, if you've the public's heard Frankenstein foods kill, you know, for three months, it is going to have an impact on the public and that will have an imp- impact on politicians' post bags and all of that. And I think that was... Somehow I imbibed that, that the science media centre's main focus was the public, the wider public. So we never did exclusives. Let's give, you know, Lawrence one story. Let's give everything we did was for all we wanted, the Daily Mail, the Sun, ITV, Sky, Five Live, LBC. It was always the wider public because we'd had a situation here where the public had said no to GM, more or less. Supermarkets said no. The public said no because not of good science well explained and a judgment that we reject that. You know, we don't have to go there based on it links to cancer. I think it's an important point, that, again, and this is where it probably very much differs from uh, what New Labour were up to um, in their pomp. Um, was that it, it wasn't, it wasn't a vi- the, the science media center should have been this kind of public facing, publicly accountable triage center. Initially, I think, I'm trying to think whether we, as it were, charitable status was connected to the Royal Institution or that, but there was, there was a notion of public duty here. So it yeah. wasn't, uh, you know, the vision was always, you know, press conference of everyone, not, exactly as you say, not trying to sort of, you know, land an exclusive to deliver something or all the rest of it. It, it, it had that 
that that idea of a public service, yes. um, yeah. which which was really important, um, mm. and 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 then being open and accountable around you know who's on the board, who's leading it. So as it were, the necessary questions that would come uh, because it's en- you're entering such a difficult and complicated space. One could be uh, transparent about. Well, well, this leads nicely, actually, in into this because I wanted to have. Well, you can know, I just ask you yeah, a question? Because yeah. I think I think you cannot talk about the beginning of the Science mm. Media Centre and that focus without focusing a little bit on you and your background. Because I think you know, had there been a little bit more of a sciencey person there, this all may have ended up being mm. something very different. But do mm. you think? How do you think your own? vision of or your background and this because you're you were always passionate and you have been about this being for everyone it wasn't just for science you know they were your main clients but i really think that that vision your vision there has so so this is this section so it's very interesting because i'm sitting here i felt like this was my very much my vision was the wider public Actually, I'm thinking now I imbibed it from some of the people who were interested in this. And it is, it's quite unique because I think what you're describing is the difference between PR for science and, uh, I don't know what you call it, you know, a press office for the public understanding of science to improve the quality and support mm. journalists to improve the quality of science reporting to get a better, well-informed discourse amongst the public. And was sitting watching for two or three years, you know, tearing my hair out at my then job of of not getting the media interested. So my perspective was the headlines. It was the front pages. You rightly said earlier, Tommy, there wasn't really anything else. That was where people got their information about science was from the national mainstream news media. Um, so that was my vantage point. And I didn't have a vantage point from inside science. And actually, I'll ask you in a minute about some of the criticisms of the centre. But um, the, even the biggest critics were saying, well, we've never heard of her. Maybe we should give her a chance. They, I'll come back to that in a second. <laughs> but that maybe was an advantage that people were prepared to give me a chance. But I'm, go- I'm going to start with you on this, Tristan, because it's kind of continuation of the, um, cause I, I want, you know, we're talking about 99, 2000, 2001. I wasn't around for this. So I would like to hear from each of you when you kind of first heard about the Science Media Center and what, when you heard about it, what your reactions were and what you thought it might do. But, but I think to start with you, you're different in this question because you were absolutely, I don't know whether, you and David envisaged this Mandelsonian rapid reaction service that would do everything you've said, um, which is very remarkably similar to what we've done. Whether you envisaged it in 99-2000, then you, uh, David set up a House of Lords inquiry to look into the relationship between science and society in which so many, I mean, I sat before the interview and read the whole report, so many of the scientists who gave evidence to that complained about the media, media misreporting and, you know, and also these eminent, you were talking about the bloke, you know, the, and, and they, they interviewed me and they'd spoken to someone from Greenpeace in the same package <laughs> and they hadn't told me. Um, um, so there was all that, a lot of complaints from the scientific community, but a lot of complaints from the journalists and, and you know, and saying, Pat Lab Ghosh with his, why don't they just roll their sleeves up and get on the pitch and play the game and stop moaning about us? It was the same time, by the way, that they were mm. circa what social issues research centre were drawing up guidelines for good science reporting that annoyed everybody. So, so did you decide you and David before that, what we'd like to come out of this report is an idea of a press office for science or did it emerge during the report? It was, I think the recommendation in June 2000 when that was published was something like, we need new resources and a new initiative on this 
I think the words frontline were actually used on this front line between great credible science and the news media, which is where a lot of the problems happen. So, or, or not, I, I don't know. I, I think as a dual track, I mean, <clears throat> I think, um, you, you know, as, as, a, as a minister, you can't kind of organize those kind of, you know, inquiries, but there, there, there was this, this strong sense within, within the scientific community and, and politicians about what we discovered about this, this disjuncture. So you've got your kind of Robert Winston's and, and others, you know, great media understanders, um, and then political frustration. And I do remember a, a series of kind of, you know, it's like sort of old fashioned politics of, 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 of building an idea around this. And I do remember a series of sort of, Meetings in a, in a quite sort of you know, establishmenty way with Susan Greenfield, with Robert Winston, uh, with you know uh, Bob um, May, Bob May from Royal Society, um, you know other other other, other figures, um, and then more broadly through the Royal Colleges and and elsewhere. Um, and then I remember a big meeting uh, at the Royal Institution um, uh, where where we gathered the the great and the good. Um, mm. and we kind of pitched it, um, okay. to, um, and it, the pitch wasn't great. Um, and there was a lot of skepticism mm. and the Royal Society were always, yeah. you know, nothing to do with us, Gov. And that was kind of fine because it shouldn't, that, that's a different part of the, the, mm. the, of, of, of civil society. Um, and, and so out of that meeting, and again, Susan instrumental, David instrumental, um, uh, David Simon, Lord Simon, uh, I seem to remember ex-BP, ex-minister, um, uh, yes. he was also um, uh, supportive yeah. um, of this. Uh, that built the coalition uh, yeah. and then funding uh, yeah. uh, for it. So it was that it was that pitch alongside, I think, you know, the work of Ian Hargreaves, the work of the House of Lords Committee. It, it kind of bubbled up that way. But, but from where I was sitting, I can I can definitely remember a kind of quite scary pitch to the greater the good of the scientific <laughs> community, explaining what kind of you know a rapid rebuttal unit would look like with sort of you know great scary. You know, why are we listening to this sort of you know twenty four year olds? You know, about is that this, how old you were? Something like that. I don't know. No, no, I was twenty six. What happened next yeah. then? Like, how did yeah. you? Was there immediate? Um, you know, did the, they leave enthusiastic? No, uh, lots of questions all the rest of it, and then and then slow and steady. Mm. follow up until until we uh until we got there and you know um, amongst david's strengths is he uh, and 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 the value of this is all of his charitable work so there's an infrastructure associated with david non-ministerial life where setting up charities and getting things going is is you know there's a toolkit there which allowed for this then to uh, to um yeah. to move forward but crucially it could never be controlled by you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, it can never be controlled by government or have, you know, single big donors or uh, be, be, you know, accountable to, you know, a minister, anything like that. It had to be, David wanted it to happen, but then to my mind, and I can't, I don't think as well, there was ever any attempt at sort of interference or control. Not or at all. Kind of, and do you know what, when you say that, A, the funding model was there when I got there, which was brilliant. Yeah. No one is allowed to give more than 5%. We have yeah. 110 donors yeah. and no one gets anything for their money. It's hilarious yeah. doing fundraising. Please yeah. give us 5,000 you get literally nothing back. Yeah. Maybe yeah. an invite to the Christmas party. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but because of that, we're not going to have anything to do, you know, we're, we're just helping this happen. 
we didn't have any government funding for yeah. about the first six or seven years. And then someone joined the board and said, why do we take money from science-based companies? Media, The Daily Mail have always funded us and Trinity Mirror and the scientific community and refuse money from government as if it's the filthiest. <laughs> and I said, I don't know. I think, that's, that's, quite, I think that's quite good to begin with. I think that's <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I also, interesting, I mean, we probably haven't got time to go into this. I have a feeling that now it's science-based companies that we all hate, you know, dodgy BP and all of the, whereas actually, um, at the time, post BSE, MMR, it was felt a little bit like the government wasn't trusted on science. So the government having their fingers all over this was kind of not what was needed. And I think yeah. the other to answer mm. your question, Tammy, Susan Greenfield wanted this. She'd just become director of the RI. She had a whole floor of the building sitting, not doing anything and got some rich friend of hers to, to pay to do it up. And it was a beautiful space that we had for years. So I think in turn, I think if you'd have just had that meeting with the great and good and Bob May and everybody, mm. it may not have come off the ground, but to yeah. have a champion. And Absolutely. then I think you were kind of lent to us a little bit to help, weren't you? Cause I remember when I was appointed, you, you came to a few meetings with me and you were supportive and. Yes. I mean, in, in, uh, I mean, and, and I, th- I think in terms of supporting the kind of, infrastructure and the feel and how the response and then we made some great hires uh, yeah. who have gone on to great hey. brilliant, brilliant things uh, well indeed so. becky morell i was i was um there were just the two of us at the beginning myself and becky morell and she is literally just taken over um as editor of science for the whole of the bbc wow. so what a fantastic yeah brilliant. so tell me yeah. do, do you remember maybe you don't 20 years ago but the first time you heard about us or how we kind of arrived in your psyche back then? Well, I think at the beginning, I mean, it's interesting to hear your thoughts, Tristram, because I I remember being told about this crazy woman who was running some science organization <laughs> by Ian Hargreaves um, and saying, you must get down and chat to her. She She's very enthusiastic. <laughs> and I remember coming down and I think the first thing uh, I went to was an MMR yeah. seminar and it was in it i mean the the ri at the time you know <laughs> london had pockets it was 20 years ago this makes me feel so old <laughs> but london was just booming at that point yeah. you know well britain was booming and that you know new labor was investing in places that hadn't been invested in and mm-hmm. so you walked down these grand streets and then you ended up in this spectacularly modern ri building mm-hmm. it was fantastic it's being redone, and yeah. um yeah and i remember going into one of the lecture theaters and listening and thinking, there are scientists who are defending the MMR vaccine. And I remember sitting beside um, Helen Bedford. Helen Bedford, David Elliman. David Elliman. Yeah, Adam and, Finn. Yeah, and thinking, oh, and then I remember talking to some journalists and thinking, oh, actually, they actually want good stories to come out of this. Mm. So what what mm. is happening here? And and mm. that's, so I remember feeling really um, uh you know, it was a positive atmosphere at that mm. time going down there. It was like there was an energy in the yeah. science media center. And that was about you and Becky opening the doors. And really yeah. anyone who wanted to defend science was welcome. Yeah. And explain science. And it, you, yeah. you were adamant. It's, we're not saying science is always right, but yeah. we're saying science should be part of it. So I it, remember meeting Matt Ridley, who then ran the Centre for Life in Newcastle, and he said, what you need to be is the terrorist wing of the scientific community. <laughs> uh, possibly not good these days, but, but, but yeah, the kind of not the, the, the brave. We definitely felt like we needed to be brave. So, so where were you? And one yeah. of the things I definitely want to talk to you about is... 
your sense of the science, the science journalist reaction to that because it yeah. was mixed. <laughs> well, I, I used to love going to to the RI to to go to SMC meetings, but for lots of reasons because there were a couple of good pubs very close. <laughs> True. Um, because True. that whole Your area was, was fascinating. Um, but I always had mixed feelings because mm. I knew I wasn't going to get an exclusive. Mm. And I knew that everyone else knew that they mm. weren't going to mm. get an exclusive because it had to be mm. what you were going to get had to be shared by everyone. Mm. So it was always a little bit uh, kind of schizophrenic. Um, mm. And I think for some people, um, I think, for instance, New Scientist at that time was mm. was a little bit hostile. Yeah. Um, oh, no, we get our own stories. They were mm. preeny about it and a bit mm. kind of, yeah. oh, no, 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 we don't need a science media center. We know lots of scientists. Mm. The, the advantage, okay, you had to share what you got at the SMC with everybody else, but what you got was very difficult to get any other way. Right, that's interesting. Um, because yeah. the SMC, in a way, was a guarantor of these these people know about this um, and are willing to talk to you about it. Yeah. That was yeah. A, a great, yeah, uh, a, a great door opener. Yeah, and actually, you didn't you didn't come to them all, and that was quite no. right because the ten o'clock news it had to be big to get on the ten o'clock news, um, and you would come to every you know three or every four, and we were always delighted to see you. It always meant it was a really important briefing if you came, but it didn't matter that you didn't come. And and actually, with new scientists. We were never set up for new scientists. They they had no. that expertise. We were there for the Daily Mail. The other thing I think was that when we opened, there were people of your caliber. You know, the these seasoned. Don't want to say old. You old, know, vet, yes, seasoned. You you made that point earlier about the reason that you knew the um, MMR paper by Wakefield was, was a bit crap was because of expertise journalistic expertise. Yeah. But what happened over the next few years? If you look at Mark Henderson, Roger Highfield, you or people moved on. And there were, I think with the Daily Telegraph, I can't remember his name now. There was a bloke, he looked about 14 who turned up and said, I'm Roger Highfield's replacement. I was on the sports desk and I'm now doing science. So I think, I think there was a bit of cynicism in the beginning. I mean, Tim Radford from The Guardian, I went to see him and said, what can we do for you? And he said, I don't think you can do anything for me, but you can have some of my contacts if you like. And that was right. There was nothing we could teach Tim Radford from The Guardian. He was a brilliant science reporter. He was generous enough to lend his contacts. But when he retired and a group of young James Randerson and he's all of those, yeah. then we became more useful. And I think now when, when you've got social media, you've got all the array, then yes, knowing that this is the trustworthy kind yeah. of. I think it's, it's very important. And, and I think the, the SMC's role in this is, is important too in, in uh, continuity of, of expertise. Because mm. um, most journalistic organizations, whether newspapers or TV or radio, love chopping and changing. They love move, people moving on. I mean, I, I, I worked for ITV News for over 30 years. That's, that's a, a, an, an amazingly long career mm, in many ways. Mm. Um, I must have been cheap. Um, <laughs> but they, uh, people change every two or three years. Mm, mm, um, yeah. Most special, even most specialists don't stay at a job for more than what, five, 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Clive Cookson at the FT is, is a great exception. Yeah. He's been there He's for a, donkey yeah. years and does yeah. brilliant stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. It's because you build up a, 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 a an armory of your own yeah. little bits of expertise. Um, and ensure the, the SMC ensures that continuity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if I you're new in that, that job, going to an SMC briefing is, is probably yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 the best intro you can get. That's three new contacts in my book. Yeah. 
And, and also, as you were saying earlier, when you're not a PR for science, we then, we facilitate that relationship. We don't own it. We don't care about it. We don't want to protect it. We're not gatekeepers, the barrier at the door. We, that's one of the reasons we run the physical briefings where journalists meet the scientists so they can exchange cards. They probably don't do that anymore, whatever. <laughs> um, WhatsApp messages. Um, and stay in touch with each other, you know. And, and, and the other thing I was going to say is we used to fear that when, when I can't remember this poor bloke and I shouldn't mention his name. I can't remember it anyway, but that the replacement for Roger Highfield, we feared that we were like, what on earth do you do after these fantastic science journalists who were our go to people when you've got somebody who's got no, but then he was saying, I want to get this right. And you know, you don't, you don't get to work on a national newspaper without being very, very bright. They're smart people. They're clever. And they've become the science or the health editor or the environment editor. And they come to us and say, well, how do we, how do we work with you? And actually that's glorious. It's even more glorious than working with you and Tim, who didn't really need us. So we've loved that actually. So now we don't fear. Well, we get sad every time they leave, but I mean, a good example is Fergus Walsh at the yeah. BBC, who uh, doesn't have a science background, yeah. who did several uh, general and specialist jobs, including I think legal affairs and yeah. law and other things. Before he moved on to doing health and then science and then uh, medicine. Yeah. Um, I mean, and Fergus has done some wonderful stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. very jealous of, mm-hmm. uh, obviously. Um, and, and I think it's, it's important that th- those people find a way of building up their contacts book. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, mm-hmm. you can get some of it from your predecessor. Um, but it, it, th- that kind of personal contact that you really need, you, you get over the years, partly yeah. at least and, and strongly. Uh, through the SMC. Yeah. Right. So listen, um, I'm very conscious of time. So let's go to the final bit. So I suppose I know it's very relevant. You're talking about Fergus Walsh there and you being jealous of him. I imagine that's a bit in the last couple of years during the pandemic and seeing all his uh, amazing coverage. So I suppose it's just a bit, a bit of a, a last minute reflection about <laughs> Zoom. We've, we spent a lot of time on the beginning. That's what this particular episode is about. But a quick look at 20 years on. We're just emerging from the pandemic. We had drinks between the journalists and the scientists who had been most busy, the ones who'd done the 18-hour days. We brought them together at the Academy of Medical Sciences last October, I think. And it it was just remarkable. Like If we zoom back 20 years to that party where the SMC was launched, there were journalists in one corner, <laughs> mostly bitching about <laughs> whether it'd be any good and whether it'll teach us to do our job or whatever, um, and scientists in another. And that has been actually, despite the, the the parties that the Royal Society used to have, it's often, you know, the press officers in one corner, scientists. This one, everywhere you looked, Peter Horby and Martin Landry talking to Sarah Bosley from The Guardian and, you know, ev- in every corner scientists talking to journalists with mutual respect, affection. The the pandemic feels to me like it's been really good for science and the media. One of my questions is any observations about that? You know, is this, you know, everything was bad. SMC comes in 20 years on, everything's beautiful. Or was it there's something about this story? And actually, if you look at only three or four years ago, statins coverage was a bit bonkers. E-cigs was not very good. Um, some climate thing. So, so is it just the nature of the story that, that meant it was covered well? Or is it a bit of both? I mean, you, you were saying there about the Wakefield paper and I, I don't know whether we could have stopped that whole thing, but we certainly would have got third party comments from very credible scientists all over the country. Anything that said anything was damaging a vaccine 
a, a vaccine was damaging children, we would have got a lot of comments and we would have got them out there. So it would have been different. So is it a bit of the success and a bit of the issue or could we actually have another MMR tomorrow? In a way, that's the question, isn't it? Could, could we have something horrible that goes wrong? I don't know what it would be. Fracking. Always possible, but I, I think it would go wrong in different ways. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> if, yeah. if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the problems with uh, stories like MMR or, or indeed like any, any of the other stories we've, we've talked about um, is that uh, journalists don't know who to go to. Uh, if you've been doing a job for a long while in a specialist role, then you, you've got a decent list. But most people who... Uh, uh, write stories for newspapers, especially in the, in the beginning uh, about COVID, at the beginning of the pa- pandemic, mm. weren't specialists. Mm. Mm. Uh, and they True. weren't on the SMC's list for True. briefings. True. True. Um, very rapidly, what happened was mm. that the specialists like, like Fergus and, and other people in, in other news organisations suddenly realised that they were going to be the front page story for the next couple mm. of months, mm. minimum. Mm. Um, and, and that, I think, um, made them come to you, come to other people. Um, as a journalist, if you know that you're going to be the front page story for a week or two, by God, does that energise you? Um, and it gives people like the SMC the chance to get in there because you're, you're, you're working 18-hour days. Um, you're, you're, you're taking it home with you. I Fogger says that he, uh, he had some sleepless nights and bad dreams at, at the beginning mm. um, because he was taking the job home with him. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that happened to other uh, journalists as well. Mm. But it, it makes you desperately thirsty for any kind of story. Mm. However, the interesting thing is there weren't many negative stories. No. The, the blood clots around, around the AZ vaccine mm. were one of the few mm. uh, negative stories that, that mm. emerged. Okay, there are anti-vaxxers. They're a fairly constant group. Mm. Uh, and I don't think they have a lot of influence. No. Um, uh, but... In in the mainstream media, there were very very few mm. uh, negative stories. Mm. Uh, I think the criticism that I might have of of the way that the the, the uh, COVID has been covered is is that um, scientists have limited themselves, um, and this is one of the things that you're keen on. I'd be interested to to know what you mm. think about what the SMC thinks about mm. it. Limited themselves by and large to the science because mm. that's why we go to the SMC mm-hmm. in the first mm. place. So they've said, uh, well, if you do this, then that what might happen. Mm. If you do, if you don't lock down, this will happen, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, they haven't by and large, uh, gone on to say, and that's why I think we need, uh, to delay the, uh, the, the uh, mm. opening up from this lockdown. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's also true of government science advisors. Now you mm. wouldn't expect them to say that mm. because they have to live with government policy, mm. whatever they think of it. Mm. But when it comes to independent scientists, I mm. think they've been perhaps, I, I say, a little bit too cautious in That's extending yeah. what they're saying from, mm. from the science into the public policy I, arena. I, I agree. I think there's, there's been a, a reluctance to be political, mm. Yes, which I thought that might have changed, but it mm. hasn't. Mm. For me, when you ask the question, could MMR happen again? I'm afraid I would say yes. Mm. And I think that's partly down to journalism. Mm. and the and balance, which is what you know, we have had many conversations mm. about. Maybe false, you haven't mentioned it yet. Yeah, about balance and false mm-hmm. balance, and what does it mean? And are, you know, I think journalists and also as audiences, mm. we're often looking for two sides to the mm. story, 
and and failing to understand that there may be two sides or ten sides, but there's going to be one side mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. really is more to the truth than the other side. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think we could. I think it might be different because I think what will happen is if the Lancet did something like that again, I think the editors are a little bit more savvy, media savvy. They've got stronger comms teams and journals mm-hmm. and those organizations. Mm-hmm. And so I think scientists are also they're more savvy. You're more. Sa- so everyone is a little bit more savvy. But nonetheless, I think also with social media, I think that idea of balance and people trying to find out the truth themselves. I I do worry. And mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. unlike Lawrence, I think if you look globally at, at how mm-hmm. COVID has affected populations, I think there has been um, in, in the sort of quest of some journalists to, to, to find this balance. They've suddenly given voice to some some mm. sort of negative stories around COVID mm. or not worrying about COVID. And that's where I think ger- uh, mm. scientists should have stepped in to mm. be a little bit more political. And they mm. didn't. Mm. And, you know, it's almost like going back to, you know, would the Blairs say that they vaccinated their child with the MMR mm. vaccine? Mm. Would you actually have mm. the, um, you know, would you have the, the vaccine? And, and we were all so desperate. We all did it. But if it, you know, if I, I do wonder... I do worry. I, mm. I think it could happen. I think mm. it, maybe not to the extent of MMR, but I do think, yeah, it mm. probably could happen. Interesting. Tristan, last word we're going to be pulling. Well, this was always, I felt, one of the great fundraising challenges uh, of the Science Media Centre was that a hugely successful result by the Science Media Centre would yield no publicity Correct. for the Science Media Centre. Correct. Um, yes. And as it were, you wanted <laughs> to support something that disappeared because it was this exchange and triage center and it shouldn't have this, you know, the vo- there mm. should have been, there never should have been a voice of the science media center. The science mm. media center says X, Y, Z is totally wrong. Mm. It was about provi- providing that facility. And mm. just as an outsider now, I mean, it seemed to me um, that, that there are a range of really interesting, detailed, scholarly, sophisticated, unexpected voices coming out through the public realm during uh, uh, COVID. And inevitably you had some characters and they rose and fall and all the rest of it. I think the, the transformation though now is, is social media. Um, and there's now a confidence amongst scientists and uh, whether it's the kind of sage panel, the independent sage or the breakaway, you know, you, and they themselves have their voice. They themselves have following. So it's become much more fluid. And I imagine mm-hmm. for the SMC, that's a kind of, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about how to manage that is, is very, very different, but. Compared to where we were 20 years ago in terms of the place of scientists in the public conversation and the public realm and the sophistication of the conversation mm. and the response and willingness of politicians to engage in that, I think there's been a step change. Mm. Mm. I think that's probably a very good moment to leave it. And Andy is nodding his head. So thank you so much. We could discuss all of this so much <laughs> more, but I'm very conscious of your time. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed that uh, wander down memory lane. Thank you.